0: You're listening to the EFree Lethbridge Podcast.
1: Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. My dear brothers and sisters, some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. For now no one can say that they were baptized in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power.
0: We have this tendency and often a desire to divide ourselves or define ourselves by our teams and our tribes, right? The the latest Spider-Man movie has reignited the debate Who's the best Spider-Man? Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, Tom Holland, or maybe it's Miles Morales. We, we talk about, we're divided along politics and COVID and which news source or podcasts or influencer you trust. We're divided into Tom Brady fans and rational people. And we've even brought these divisions into the church, right? We, do you like hymns or songs, Gaithers or Hillsong? We, we divide along preachers, podcasts, and authors. John Mark Comer, Beth Moore, David Jeremiah, or Mark Clark. Now, the preaching team thought it would be sort of fun to have a few different preachers preach this message and, and see who got the most views. We could even do an America's Got Talent style with judges and audience votes. kind of... Sounds sound silly, doesn't it? It's probably okay to have our favorite authors and speakers and podcasts, but the problem is when they become markers of our identity. Oh, you're a follower of McKnight. Oh, you're a follower of Chandler. And it's even more of a problem when they become boundaries to belonging. You're in because you follow the people I follow, or you're out because you don't. And we've been doing this for years. we Latest statistics say that there are 41,000 distinct Christian denominations around the world. And the problem with showing you this chart is that I, every chart that I could find seemed biased. So they had some denominations straight on the highway to hell and others that were going to go to heaven, others that said they were the true church, and all the others were splinters and factions and lesser reflections of the true church. In verse 13, Paul asks a really important question Has Christ been divided into factions? It's meant to be a rhetorical question with an assumed answer. Has Jesus been divided into fractions and factions? Of course not. But today, maybe the answer isn't as clear. Maybe it's really hard not to answer, unfortunately, yes. Unity, harmony, has been a challenge for the church right from the church's birth. In Acts chapter 6, we read that the, the, a, a division threatened the church between Hebrew-speaking believers and Greek-speaking believers. It threatened to divide the church. Division, or the lack of unity and harmony, is one of the issues that Chloe's house has brought to Paul's attention. Verse 11, it says, For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. We're in a series right now in the book of Corinth. We're going to take our time going through it, and we're calling it Corinth, Pride and Prejudice. And it's a letter that Paul, who's the founder of the church in Corinth, is writing a couple of years after he's been in the city. In response to a letter that was full of questions from the Christians who met in Stephanus' house. It's hard to say. Uh, and reminder that the Corinthian church mainly met in, in smaller settings, in house churches around the city. And this letter was probably written on behalf of all the house churches, making up the whole church in Corinth. But he's also received a verbal report from the Christians who met in Chloe's house. And the report is this, verse 12. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Rather than reflecting God's holiness to the culture around them, as Paul reminded them they were called to do in verse 2, they were reflecting the values and priorities of the culture into the new community. You see, in the culture, teachers would travel around the empire and they'd collect followers, they'd collect disciples, and the disciples would often quarrel and actually even physically brawl among themselves as to which teacher was the greatest. And the Christians in Corinth were treating Paul, Apollos, Peter, and even Jesus as teachers to be played against one another, to be argued about. And they were trying to gain status and power from whom they associated with or, or claimed to belong to. Some were associating with Paul, which makes sense. He was the founder of their church. He would baptized a few of them, but it seems like Paul wasn't very impressive. His appearance and his speaking style didn't quite measure up to their sophisticated standards of greatness and power. Some were associating with Apollos. We read about him at the end of Acts chapter 18. He came from Alexandria in Egypt. He was a Jewish believer. He was exposed to strong Jewish philosophical reasoning and was probably trained in in presentation and oratory. And he encounters some of Paul's close co-workers, Priscilla and Aquila, in Ephesus. And they instruct him in a fuller understanding of the gospel of Jesus because he'd only heard up until the baptism of John the Baptist. And as he gains this fuller understanding and accepts it, he then goes to Corinth to serve the Christians there after Paul had left and gone on to Ephesus. And his teaching style and his appearance and methods seemed like they were superior to Paul's, at least by Corinthian standards. And so maybe by associating with a more presentable, capable teacher, Corinthian Christians thought they could gain more prestige and acceptance in their culture and in their city. Some were associating with Peter. And it's not clear that Peter ever went to Corinth, but he's the OG apostle. As the stories of Jesus start to circulate, it may have been known by them that Peter was the one who Jesus entrusted with the keys to the kingdom that he was the one who had opened the door for the Holy Spirit to redeem and bring new life to the Jews by preaching on Pentecost and then to the Gentiles by going and sharing the gospel with Cornelius' household. Now the super spiritual, we're playing the trump card. We only follow Jesus. You ever been in one of those conversations? You know, debating different ideas? while N.T. Wright says, oh yes, while John Piper says, that's all good, but Jesus would say, it's hard to argue that one. Has Jesus been divided into factions and fractions? It's actually a a graphic question. See, later in the letter, Paul's going to use the image of Jesus' body to describe the church. He's going to argue that we all, whether we're rich or poor, young or old, male or female, blue or white-collar, privileged or oppressed, are all part of Jesus' body. And when we divide ourselves, we're dividing and dismembering Jesus' body. In essence, Paul kind of wants us to think back to the crucifixion and recognize that by our striving for power and prestige, we are reenacting Jesus' crucifixion. Our attitude also fences Jesus off. You see, when I say, I follow Jesus, it implies that you don't. It implies that I'm the only one or, or I'm part of an exclusive group who truly understands the full implications and meaning of Jesus' teaching. We have Jesus, and we've got to protect him from you. I grew up in that experience. <laughs> we were sure we were the only true expression of Jesus' disciples. We were sure that we were the only ones who truly understood and expressed Jesus' intentions for meeting and for living. And we weren't shy about it at all. Has Jesus been divided into factions and fractions? It's significant in this passage that the divisions don't seem to be based on theological differences. It's more based on on personalities and power. If there were theological issues that divided them, Paul would have addressed the theological issues. Rather, they were divided based on competition for social status, power, and prestige. They were divided along celebrity lines. We do the same thing today. Yes, sometimes we separate due to theological differences or corruption. But often it's along issues of style, ministry, how we follow health orders and medical advice more recently. Has Jesus been divided into factions and fractions. In response to the report of quarrels and debates, Paul gives clear instructions. We find them in verse 10. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. There's that word that we've been hanging on to over the last few months. Paul's not stamping out diversity, but he's banishing an unloving attitude. To live in harmony with each other, let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. This is pretty clear instruction, but it's actually not super helpful at first reading, is it? Essentially Paul, it sounds like Paul's saying, "I've heard you were divided, Don't be." Sort of be like, can stopping our worship singing to exhort us to sing more on key without telling us how to correct it or what we're doing wrong, right? Just sing better. It's not super helpful. But when we look a little bit closer, Paul's instructions are are more nuanced and even more clear. He starts by saying, I appeal to you. He's practicing what he wants the Christians in Corinth to practice. Paul's not making a power play, coming in as the apostle and founder of the church, he's appealing. I'm reading a book right now on marriage, and it's talking about where I am right in this moment the difference between an invitation, a request, a demand, and a complaint. And Paul's instructions thread the needle right between a request and demand. This is a very strong request, but not quite a demand. I appeal to you. And then he says, Dear brothers and sisters, Again, demonstrating what he wants the church to practice. He's reminding them, we're all part of the same family. Paul is their brother. They are his brothers and sisters. Again, he's not coming to them as as the apostle, as the authority. He's coming to them as an equal. He might be the founder of their community. He might be a senior pastor and key leader of Jesus' mission. But the bottom line is, he's a member of the family. And so are they. Unity begins with humility. It begins by not thinking you're better than you really are and recognizing your true identity. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ's family. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the key. Literally, it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the opening of the letter last week, we saw how Paul repeated Jesus' name nine times to indicate that that Paul's focus and concern was always and only Jesus, and that the Corinthians' focus and concern should be always and only Jesus. And by invoking the name or the authority of Jesus, Paul is invoking Jesus' presence. He's reminding the Christians in Corinth that, that they live in the presence of Jesus. Jesus is here. What would he think of their divisions and quests for power? What, what would he say to them? Now, Paul's also saying that the best way to live in unity is not to focus on unity itself, the best way to live in, in unity or harmony is to focus on Jesus. To remember that Jesus is present with us and to attend to his presence, to acknowledge his presence. And then to remember that because he is present with us, we live under Jesus' authority. At the end of verse 13, in kind of a backhanded sort of way, Paul reminds them that they have also turned their allegiance over to Jesus. Verse 13, at the end, it says this, Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. In our baptism liturgy, we ask the person being baptized, what is your confession of of faith? And they respond, Jesus is Lord. And by doing so, they're confessing that Jesus is God and that Jesus is king of the world, of the church, of their lives. They're expressing a, a commitment to live under the authority of Jesus. And then if I was doing the baptism, my response would be upon your confession of faith and in obedience to Jesus' command. Again, submission on my part. I I come under the authority of Jesus even as the one baptizing. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now it's possible in the early church that they baptized in the name of Jesus alone. I baptize you in the name of Jesus. There's two things that are happening when we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's indicating that I'm baptizing you as an agent or as a representative of Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. I'm acting on their behalf. It's kind of like when you make a donation in someone's name or honor. You're the one doing it, but they're the one being recognized for it. So when we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it indicates that that you are not really being baptized by me, but by Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. And Further, the second thing that happens is that you're being baptized into or in the name of Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. It's a declaration that that your identity is now found in Jesus alone. That you're now defined by your relationship with him. You've taken his name on yourself. And your allegiance then and loyalty have been totally surrendered to Jesus. Paul is reminding the Christians in Corinth that Jesus is the one who matters. The only one who ultimately matters. Everyone else, from the OG apostles to the youngest converts, are simply members of his body. Has Jesus been divided into factions and fractions? Paul also reminds them who Jesus is, again, through a rhetorical question at the, in the middle of verse 13. Was I, Paul, crucified for you? And then through a reminder of Paul's mission in verse 17. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news and not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. Paul isn't minimizing the importance of baptism. In other letters to other churches, he indicates that it's very important. In fact, he finds it odd if you would say that you're a follower of Jesus but weren't baptized. As an aside, if you find yourself in that position and want to fix it, we're planning a baptism service on February 27th and we'd love for you to be a part of that, to to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, declaring your allegiance to him and accepting his name on you. Uh, If you wanna be part of that, you can contact any of the church staff and we'd love to walk you through that. Now, back to the passage. It's possible that some Christians in Corinth were claiming superiority because Paul baptized them. Paul reminds them, you weren't baptized in my name, and who baptized whom is beside the point. What's important is that you were made alive and made members of God's family by Jesus. The Christian life starts and ends with Jesus. Church life starts and ends with Jesus Your life starts and ends with Jesus, in particular with Jesus crucified. Paul reminds us that the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It's the way of service, submission, and sacrifice. And so if someone is using Jesus or Jesus' name to exert or gain power, then they're not truly following Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is not to consider power, status, prestige, something to be grasped after and used for our own advantage. The way of Jesus is to empty ourselves and become obedient. The way of Jesus is to serve one another in mutual submission, to maybe literally but definitely figuratively to wash one another's feet. The way of Jesus is the way of sacrifice and surrender. Has Jesus been divided into factions and fractions? Today, it sure seems like it, doesn't it? And yet, I think Paul would still answer as he does in his letter to the Christians in Corinth. Of course not. There is still one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and living through all. We have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And while our present experience might be discouraging and might indicate otherwise, that might indicate that we are divided, Paul would call us to two things. First of all, to cling to the cross. Because through Jesus' death, we have the power to accomplish what seems impossible, to cling to the cross while we eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. For when he returns, all that is broken will be restored. All that is fractured and factioned will be made whole and unified again. Secondly, he would call us to consider this question by the way I live and act and relate to others? Am I contributing to the fracturing, the dismemberment of Jesus' body? Or am I living in a way that encourages and supports active reconciliation and restoration? Promoting reconciliation and restoration begins by remembering that you live in the presence of Jesus and under his authority, who did not grasp position and power, but made himself nothing and surrendered to death. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, live in harmony with each other and don't be divided into rival groups. I want to close my sermon by praying a prayer that I found in a book by Phyllis Tickle that takes us through the the different offices, the prayer cycles of the day. It's a Chinese prayer that can be found in the United Methodist Hymnal, and it says this. Would you pray it with me? Help each of us, gracious God, to live in such selfless generosity and restraint that the head of the church may never have cause to say to any one of us, This is my body, broken by you. Amen. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.